Hey, thanks for listening to Cornerstone Church. You can find us on the web at akcornerstone.org. And we want you to know it's our prayer that the Holy Spirit will use this message to either save you through the good news about Jesus Christ, grow you into the likeness of Jesus, or send you to proclaim Jesus in the Spirit's power. If you have your Bibles, please turn to Romans chapter 11. And let me just add to that phrase, if you have your Bibles. We're not going to throw the verses up on the screen today. One of the things I want to encourage you with, and we're, we're talking as a, a staff team about ways to really encourage and reinforce your love for the Word and your continual use of the Word in your own life, in your own family. And so uh, I'm not exactly sure what that's all going to look like, but We'll be doing a few different things on Sunday in relationship to the Scriptures instead of throwing them on the screen, really encouraging you to bring your Scriptures with you, bring your Bibles with you. If you don't have a Bible, you can talk to any one of our ushers and and we will give you one. We're not going to sell you one, we want to give you one. And so, bring your Bibles. Be people of the Word, people who know the Word. You desperately need that. You need a biblical worldview in order to live in our decadent, godless society. You need to know the truth so that the truth can set you free to live in the will and the plan of God, which is truly life. And so, bring your Bibles on Sunday. I want you, as I preach, I want you to see that what I'm talking about, or whoever fills this pulpit when I'm not here, what I am so deeply concerned with is that what we do is we proclaim the Word of God, that we get our truth from the Word of God, that it is grounded and anchored and taken from this authoritative book right here, a book unlike any other book, the book that is the very words of God, that is the verbal inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, His Word to mankind for life in practice. Let's bring your Bibles. Romans chapter 11. I don't have time to get very far today, but what we have done already is critically important. But I want to just share a little bit from Romans chapter 11 as we continue our study of this letter. What Paul is doing, we're going to look today at verses 28 and 29. I doubt that we'll get to 30, 31, and 32, but at least verses 28 and 29. And what Paul is doing in this section, in these verses, is that he is both summarizing what he has been teaching in the 11th chapter, particularly beginning in verse 11 up to verse 27. He's summarizing that. And he's also, this is critical, he's also proving the truth 
of what he has been saying. So verses 28 through 32 are both a summary of what he's been teaching in the second half of Romans 11, and it is a proof, it is a logical working out to prove the veracity of the truth that he has been sharing. And what is that truth? What has Paul just communicated in verses 25, 26, and 27? Let me just give you one key idea that we spent last week or a portion of last Sunday's sermon on. Paul, in verses 25 and 26, wrote about a mystery that had been revealed to him. A mystery that had not been revealed in human history prior to God revealing that to him. God revealing it just because God chose to reveal it based upon his call upon Paul's life, not because of something special in Paul, not because Paul figured it out with his own mind, but because God just made known by divine revelation to Paul a great mystery. And the mystery that had been hidden in the past was this. That after the full number of the Gentiles had come in, after the full number of the Gentiles that God has ordained to salvation are saved, then God is going to save all Israel. Not all meaning mathematical precision, but the same all referencing when the full number of the Gentiles have come in. In other words, this mass group of Jews, after all of the Gentiles have come in in the future, there's going to be a mighty revival of God among the Jewish people where that nation that in Paul's day and still today for the past 2,000 years were as a whole in a wholesale fashion basically rejected and cut off from the covenant of God outside of God's blessing under his condemnation. Why? Because they had rejected the Messiah. God had sent to them his very own holy son, and they refused to believe him. Even though they saw what he did, the miracles attesting to the fact that he was sent by God, and though they heard the truth directly from his lips, They hated him and they pressured Pilate to sentence him to crucifixion. And so God rejected the Jews because they had rejected his son. And so what Paul is answering in the 11th chapter is this. Looking around at the Jews of his day in wholesale fashion, not meeting every single one of them, but the vast majority of them being unsaved outside of the promises of God, Paul is answering really two questions. 
Did God reject all of the Jews, the total number? Answer is no, there's always been a remnant. There's always been some that God elected and called and saves and will take to heaven. A small number. Even in the midst of this great apostasy of the Jewish nation, God always has a remnant. Paul proved that from the Old Testament. Here's the second question he's answering. Is God finally or forever finished with the Jews? Has he just said, I'm done with them as a nation because of the way that they rejected my son? And Paul's answer is, no, there's coming a day. And here's the mystery. There's coming a day that after the full number of the Gentiles have come into the kingdom of God, there is going to be this massive revival among the Jewish people. And the way that Paul describes that, he says that the Savior, that Jesus is going to come from Zion and he's going to turn ungodliness away from Jacob, referring to the people of Israel, and he's going to save them from their sin that he is going to be faithful to the covenant that he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, their forefathers, by doing this, by saving them from their sins. And the entire emphasis there is that this is a work of God. It's not that there is a generation in the future that grows up that has a greater disposition a more loving heart toward God. No, it's in the midst of their ungodliness, of their rebellion, that God is just going to turn them away from ungodliness and save them from their sins. It's going to be a mighty work of God when he pours out his spirit upon them and causes them, those who had rejected the Savior, believing he was a blasphemer, claiming to be God, that those who had rejected him, that he's going to open their eyes and they're going to see him for who he is and they're going to love him for who he is and they're going to, in wholesale fashion, turn to him as their savior and they're going to be united with this full number of Gentiles that are saved, then being this massive group of Jews that will join into this one church made up of the full number of Gentiles and this mighty revival among the Jews. That's the mystery that Paul says is going to happen. And so here's the question. Having said that, how does he prove that that mystery is a reality? I mean, he's made this incredible claim, this mystery that no one had seen before. Paul is saying, God has revealed it to me. Is that the only thing that he hangs his hat upon? Is that the only proof, him claiming that he has heard something from God? Well, what he does in the verses that we're going to look at today is that he provides some really profound reasoning that validates the truth of that. 
And here is how he does it. Let me just kind of give you the concept first and then let me show it to you. What Paul does is that he emphasizes the truth about who God is to prove that God is going to bring this mystery to fruition. You'll see that in a minute, but keep that in mind as we read these two verses. What Paul does is that he looks to the person of God, the nature of God, the essence and character of God, and he shows us that God's nature proves the truth that this mystery, this mighty revival among the Jewish people that he says will happen after the full number of the Gentiles has come in is a guaranteed reality in the future history of Israel. So what Paul does, he makes two great statements. He makes one of them in verse 29 and another in verse 32. And he follows the same pattern in both. Let me just show you the outline here. In verse 28, he sets up the statement. And then in verse 29, based upon the setup, he makes this great statement, reveals this great propositional truth. He does the same thing in the next three verses. In verse 30 and 31, he sets up the statement. And then in verse 32, he gives the great statement, states this great propositional truth. So let's look at them, at least this first set. I don't know if we'll have time to get to both of them uh, today, but we have another 10 or 15 minutes here. Here's the setup. Verse 28. Remember, he is proving the truth of the mystery that he has said is going to happen, this mighty revival among the Jews after the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And so here's what he does in verse 28. He writes, As regards the gospel, they... Now we have to remember who they are. We looked at this last week. That's referring to the Jewish nation as a whole. That's what they means. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. He's writing this to the church at Rome, primarily Gentiles. And so he is talking about how God is using this relationship, this dynamic that is taking place in the Jewish people to accomplish something in the Gentile People. And so what he says is, as regards the gospel, the Jews are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. That's the setup. So let me talk about the setup for a minute. Paul makes two statements here about the Jews. Both of these statements are true about the Jews, they seem like they radically contradict each other. But let's just 
highlight them first. They, the Jews, he says, are both enemies and they are beloved. Do you see that? Verse 28, as regards the gospel, they, the Jews, are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they, the Jews, are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. So let's take the first one. The the Jews are enemies. What are they enemies of? Well, they put themselves in Paul's day and the vast majority of them yet today, they put themselves in a place of enmity with God. Why? Because they're enemies of the gospel. They're enemies of the good news of Jesus Christ. It's not good news to them. It's heresy to them. They're still looking for the coming of the Messiah the first time. They don't believe that Jesus was who he claimed to be. They believe he was a heretic, a blasphemer. That's why they sought so aggressively with a vengeance to silence him. That's why they pressured Pilate to nail him to a cross. They wanted to shut him up because they were enemies of what he was about. They were against the truth that he was proclaiming. They're enemies of the gospel. But look closely at what Paul says. He says they're not only enemies, but he says why they are enemies. It's interesting. He says they're enemies for your sake, meaning for the sake of the Gentiles. Here's an incredible truth. Remember what we're talking about here? Paul is going to prove what he said about the mystery of the Jews being saved in the future, and he's going to do that by showing something about the character of God. And so what he does here is he says that the Jews are enemies of the gospel for the sake of the Gentiles. Now, what truth is in there about God? We looked at it uh, last week. Let me highlight it again. It's this, that God even uses in his sovereignty the rebellion and disobedience and rejection of the Jewish people of their Messiah. God in his sovereignty uses that as the means, as the occasion to open up the gospel to the Gentile world so that you and I could get saved. Is God the author of sin? No, he is not. But in his sovereignty, God is able to take sin and use it toward the accomplishment of his great and eternal purposes. And that is what Paul is showing right here. He is saying that the Jews, they are enemies of God, of the gospel of God for the sake of the Gentiles to get accomplished what God wanted to get accomplished in the Gentiles by offering salvation to them. 
It is the occasion of God taking the natural branch. This goes back a little further in chapter 11. Out of the tree of the covenant that he had made with Israel, the natural branch, the Jews, so that he could graft in the wild branch, the Gentiles. So the point here is about the character and the person of God, namely his sovereignty in using even the rebellion and the rejection and the disobedience of the Jews to accomplish his good purposes among the Gentile people. That's amazing. That's amazing. So this is a statement about what God is doing, about who God is in his person and his character. Let me show you the next statement and how that as well is precisely a statement about the person of God in his nature and in his character. He goes on to say that the Jews are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. You say, wait a minute, Brad, isn't the emphasis here upon the forefathers? Doesn't God love them because of how great the forefathers were? Now, on a quick reading, it might look like that. But if you just pause a minute and think about it, you'll see that it doesn't mean that at all because how great were Abraham and Isaac and Jacob? God called Abraham in his 70s as a pagan, idolatrous man. And he came to him in his divine election, in his choice, and because of who God is, just said to Abraham, Abraham, here's what I'm going to do with you. I'm going to make you into a great people, you who have no children, I am just choosing to enter into this covenant relationship to you and do something that is going to impact the entire human race through you. I'm going to make you great, make you into a great nation, and kings and peoples are going to come from you, and all the world is going to be blessed through you. Why? Because I am just deciding to do that. Abraham, I am coming to you as a godless man and I'm going to do something in you because of my election, my choice, my decision to lavish my love and my grace and my mercy upon you. That has got to be the story. Read the end of chapter 11 of Genesis and chapter 12 and the rest of Abraham's story. He was not this guy that was spotless. He was a pagan idolater that God just chose for himself and for his purposes. Not only Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac is the father of Jacob. Read their stories. There was not some merit in their lives that set them apart from everyone else on the face of the earth and caused God to say, wow, look at them. Man, I have got to choose them. No, 
Paul is so explicit and repetitively explicit that God's decision of them is all about God, not at all about them. Let me just give you one example. At the beginning of this three-chapter section, Romans 9, 10, and 11, that form a unit within this letter where Paul is explaining God's purposes for human history related to salvation. He says in Romans chapter 9, talking about his election, his choice of those that he saves, it says in Romans chapter 9, verse 10 through 13, and not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our father Isaac. Now, Isaac is Abraham's son. When Rebekah, Abraham's wife, conceived children by him, two children, Jacob and Esau, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, if that's not explicit enough, then he goes on to qualify it and define it further, not because of works, but because of Him who calls. It's all about the call of God, and God calls based upon His election. So here is the reason that God chose Jacob, because He elected him, and He called him because He elected him, called him to Himself, and saved him based upon His election. And He didn't choose Esau, because He hadn't elected him. So the point here in verse 28 where it says that the Jews are beloved for the sake of their forefathers is not some statement about the meritorious life of the forefathers. It is a statement about God's purposes. It's about what God began when He came to Abraham, the purpose that He had in mind. And what was that purpose? It was a purpose according to election. That's what He said in Romans 9. And so what this statement means, that they are beloved for the sake of the forefathers, is that God loves them because He chose to set His love upon the forefathers and made a covenant promise to the forefathers. And that God is a God who changes not. Therefore, He's not done with Israel. Why? Because He made some promises to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob that have not come to fruition yet. So we know that God is not done with them. Because all of His promises toward the Jewish people as a nation have not come to pass. So what Paul is giving us here in the setup. Remember, verse 28 is a setup to the great statement of verse 29. So what Paul is giving us here in the setup, in both statements that he makes, is that he is telling us 
about the character, about the person, about the nature of God. That God, in his divine nature and purpose, has chosen to use the rebellion of the Jews to send salvation to the Gentiles as a nation. That's the sovereign work of God, taking wickedness and using it toward his eternal purposes. And then secondly, that the God who called Abraham and Isaac and Jacob chose them from among all the peoples of the earth, made covenant promises to them, and determined to lavish his love upon them is the same God who is going to fulfill those promises that he made because of who he is. It's all about the person of God. It's all about the nature and the character of God. The way that Paul is setting this up to prove the truth of the mystery is to go to the character of God and say, I can prove that the mystery, this great revival in the future among the Jewish people is going to happen because here's what I know about God. And so he starts teaching about the nature of God to prove it. Now let me make it even more plain because the great statement after the setup of verse 28, the great statement of verse 29 begins with the word for. What is it there for? It is a word that is saying, based upon what I have just said, or because of that truth, or the result of that truth, of verse 28, Actually, if you want to read it in order, it should be like this. The truth of 29 precedes the truth of 28 in chronological order. Think about the statement. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but as regards the election, they are beloved for the sake of the forefathers. For, because of some truth. In other words, what precedes verse 29 is the truth of verse 28. Verse 28 is true because of the reality of verse 29. And what is the verse the reality of verse 29, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. I'm running out of time here. I wished I could unpack this in greater detail. What does he mean by the gifts and the calling of God? Before we consider the word irrevocable, what are the gifts and the calling of God? Well, the context communicates that. What is the calling of God? The calling of God is God calling people to himself. Romans chapter 8, that those God foreknew, he also 
predestined, those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. The call of God is that effectual movement of the Spirit of God that takes a person dead in sin, regenerates them, gives them life, eyes so they can see, ears so they can hear, minds so they can understand, a heart that is responsive to God, and he shows them the truth of who Jesus is in such a way that Jesus becomes so compelling. And now that they have this heart of flesh that longs after God, they make a decision to put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. That's the call of God. That's what the call of God does. What are the gifts of God? Romans chapter 9, verse 4 and 5 lists the gifts of God to the Israelite people. They are the Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. These incredible privileges that God had given to the Israelite people as a nation. Paul is saying God hasn't taken them away. He has a future plan to fulfill all of those in the end among the Israelite people. Right now in Paul's day and still today, those are being fulfilled within a remnant, a small number of Jews that God has always called and kept for himself down through history. And in the end, it's going to be fulfilled in a wholesale way when this mighty revival of God comes and he fulfills the covenant that he makes, that he made to the Jewish people by forgiving them of their sins. So the gifts and the call of God are irrevocable. They're irrevocable. They once it has happened, cannot be taken back. Once God has called and accomplished the salvation in a life, that salvation remains. Why? Because the gifts and the call of God are irrevocable. You see, what Paul is using as his line of argument is the character of God. He is saying that the mystery is not only true because I'm saying God revealed it to me, but I'm telling you that mystery perfectly lines up with what the Bible teaches us about who God is in Himself, in His nature, in His character. He is a God who sees the end from the beginning. He is a God who accomplishes all of His purposes, who follows through on all of His promises, who finishes everything He begins. That's the emphasis.
So God's salvation, that's what this line of discussion is about. It's about salvation. So God's salvation flows from, is grounded in, is begun by, is carried forward within, and is fully completed by the person, the nature, and the character of God. And listen, it's so great that that's true because if it depended on you or me, it would not last. But God changes not. Therefore, his gifts and his call are irrevocable. There's got to be a one person in this building that's excited about that except me. Amen. Do you want to stand before God on the final day and say to God, When he asks, why should I allow you into my heaven? Well, because I initiated and chose you, God. It's not going to fly. It's not going to fly. We love because he first loved us. We choose because he chose us. You see, All of this treatment is meant to silence the pride and the arrogance of the human heart and show the glory of God so that we are amazed. We're going to get to that in the last doxology, the last few verses of this chapter, but all that Paul is leading up to in this three-chapter treatment of God's plan in history is to cause us at the end to say, oh my goodness, God is truly sovereign and His ways are greater than my mind can comprehend just because of who He is. He's done this for me. That's what he's driving at. Because God is who God is. That's the point that proves that the mystery is going to be fulfilled. Here's the question. Does anybody else in Scripture other than Paul teach this? Does anyone else Claim that those that God calls to himself or that, let me even back that up, that God is the one who calls people to himself and that everyone that God calls will get saved and that everyone that gets saved will go all the way to glory. Does anybody else in Scripture say that? I could give you a list. I'll just go to the top of the list. And let you hear from Jesus, John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, Jesus said, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Who is the one that gives to Jesus? The Father. And what happens when the Father does give them and they come, they will never be cast out. 
verse 39, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Do you see the certainty being anchored in the person and the character of God? Here, the second member of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, I will lose nothing of all that God has given me. Verse 40, for this is the will of my Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life and I will raise Him up at the last day. Verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. Just put that together. Nobody can come unless God calls. If God calls a person, they come every time and everyone that comes remains and will not be lost. Jesus guarantees that and in the end, he will raise them up on the last day, meaning take them to glory. Jesus affirms what Paul is teaching here. Jesus does the same thing that Paul does. He bases the certainty of the proof of what he is saying on the character and the person of God, not something in man, never something in man, always the truth about the person and the nature and the character of God. John ten twenty seven to 30, Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand, and I and the Father are one. It's the Father who does the giving. It's the Son and his voice that calls, and when they're in, they stay, and no one will ever take them out. That's the truth that Jesus Christ over and over again communicates. That's the basis of our security, and Paul is saying the same thing. And he takes this mystery of the future revival among the Jewish people that he said God has revealed to him, and he says this, I know that it's going to happen, not simply because God revealed it to me, though that would be enough, but I want to prove it to you by this, by the very person of who God is. And God is a God who keeps his promises. And God who has made promises to the nation of Israel is going to fulfill the promises that he has made. He's not done with them yet. All the promises haven't been fulfilled. And what's going to happen is he's going to fulfill those promises in the end by a mighty revival when he takes away their ungodliness and saves them from their sin application, what does that have to do with you and me? Oh, it has everything to do with you and me. Because God is the same God to the Jew as He is to the Gentile. God saves the Jew just like He saves the Gentile. You can take the truth about the character of God and apply it to your own situation. God has called you to Himself. He's going to keep you if he has called you to Christ, he's going to keep you in Christ. And on the last day, he's going to raise you up in Christ to be with him forever in glory. Close with this quote from Arthur Pink. Listen. Anchor your boat about your salvation, your 
certainty. Anchor your boat in the faithfulness of God Almighty and plant your feet on the rock that nothing in heaven or earth will ever shake. If you do, you will find that God is unchanging and you will find him to be exactly as he was to Abraham and to Moses and to David and all who have gone before. You will not find him withdrawing his gifts because of some failure in you or repudiating his calling of you once you have come to Jesus Christ. Why won't you find that? Paul answers it because the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. He's the God who sees the end from the beginning. He knew everything about you when he called you to Christ, not just what you had done up to that moment, everything that you would do, yet he called you. He called you with an eternal purpose based upon his purposes of election. That means he's going to keep the work going forward. Yeah, there will be Failures, yes, there will be setbacks. I know that in my own life as well as anyone else here. But here's what I know. It's not based upon me. It's based upon the character and the nature of God. That's where I hang my hat. That's where I put my anchor. That's what causes my hope to rise up when all around me says something else. That's what caused Paul to look at the Jews in mass outside of the blessings of God and see through that brutal scenario to a future day that said, God is yet going to win the day for the Jew. And God's going to do that for you. That's the applicational truth. He's that kind of a God. You can take that to the bank, heaven's bank. He's going to be faithful to you. He's always faithful even when we're not, he's faithful. Thank God for that. Paul is exalting the faithfulness of God here. And what we're going to see next week, the second half of the proof, is that God exalts the mercy of God. He not only exalts the faithfulness of God, 28 and 29, but he exalts the mercy of God, 30. 31 and 32, to prove the veracity of the mystery that's going to happen in the future. Would you please stand? Father, really hard, Lord, to try in 30 minutes to go into a really deep subject like that stretches our mind. Really, it's in full measure. It's beyond the reach of our mind. We're finite. You're infinite. Your ways are eternal. We're temporary. We had a beginning. You didn't. We have limits. You don't. But what I'm praying is that as your Holy Spirit has sent out your word, that what you do is cause faith to arise in the truth of who you are. Help us to see you as you are in this truth and be amazed at who you are, that our view of you would be more high and exalted and would 
raise up in us this greater and greater passion to live for your glory because of who you are. That's clearly one of the great applicational truths to this message is that the God about whom Paul is writing, this great God of glory, is a God who should be glorified in our thoughts and in our actions because of who he is. Help that vision of God to work toward that goal and result in us, I pray. Thank you for being a faithful God. In Jesus' name, amen.